you turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 3, just a reminder to look at all the wonderful announcements in your bulletin, neat things that are going on in the life of the church. I'd like to especially encourage you, if God would be laying this on your heart, uh, next Sunday there's a, a meeting following church that Kids Club, a ministry in Eureka, is, is sponsoring. It's a, a great ministry uh, because it, it deals with children and deals with children that are facing some very... Uh, significant needs and their families are facing some significant needs. It's just a great opportunity, a great ministry for an individual or even a family. And uh, next week there'll be some more information about that in the meeting. I just uh, encourage you to prayerfully consider perhaps God is calling you to to this this neat uh, opportunity. Well, Luke chapter 3, we looked at verses 1 through 20 last week. We didn't get all the way through. We kind of got through verse 9. If you'd stand with me, we're going to begin pick up and verse 7 of Luke chapter 3. Uh, the ministry of John the Baptist has just been described, and John begins his proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ with a call to repentance here in verse 7. Verse 7, Luke chapter 3, he said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. We thank you for the the songs we've already been able to sing, the teaching many of us have received already in our Sunday school classes, and we turn now again to, to look at your word more closely, and we pray that you would cause our hearts to turn in repentance toward you, faith in your son Jesus. Give us understanding, we pray in your son Jesus' name, amen. Last week, as we began looking at Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, we saw that God begins the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ with a call to repentance. 
John the Baptist enters the scene and, and calls people to turn from their sins. That's how God begins the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And last week, as we talked about the call to repentance that John begins to issue here, we saw that there are several ways that the church might, or that people sometimes as they talk about repentance, might err. One way that people sometimes err in the topic of repentance and the issue of repentance is failing to call people to repentance at all. In this scenario, churches are sometimes afraid of offending people. They don't want to talk about sin and they need to turn from sin. And so sometimes they hesitate from talking about sin at all. They don't call unbelievers to turn from their sin and to faith in Jesus. They don't call believers to turn from their sin and restore the relationship with God. And so that's one error that is sometimes made when talking about repentance is the error of not calling people to repentance at all. Another error that we touched on last week when dealing with the subject of repentance is to make repentance a work that a person must do in order to find acceptance before God. So under this scenario, for example, a person might say, well, in order to be found acceptable before God, in order to receive his salvation, in order to truly be forgiven of your sins, you have to repent, and by repent, you have to to do some things that, that show that you're really repentant. So, for example, you might have to to do penance, or you might have to say a certain prayer, or you might need to confess your sins publicly or privately, or you might need to to ask for forgiveness for some people. And the teaching here would be, look, you can't truly be saved until you work to show that you're really repentant. Instead of saying it's faith that brings about salvation, they're saying it's faith plus this work of repentance that causes you to receive God's salvation. That is a wrong understanding of repentance as well, and it distorts the true gospel. The true gospel, the true good news of Jesus Christ, is that you can receive forgiveness for your sins simply by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, we saw last week that as one places one's faith in Jesus Christ, true, genuine faith is always accompanied by repentance. It's always accompanied by a turning from one's sin. Last week, we kind of began to look at a definition of repentance. We saw that repentance is to change one's mind concerning sin. By changing one's mind, we don't just mean changing one's opinion, but looking at sin and saying, look, I, as I repent, I have a different understanding of what sin is. I have a different feeling about this sin, and my intention toward this sin has changed as well. So, for example, let's say it's the sin of lying. You tell some white lies at work to your clients or to your boss. A person who's repenting of that sin of lying says, look, I used to think this wasn't a big deal. I used to not think that this was a sin. Now I understand this is a sin, and this sin is a big deal to God. My feelings toward this sin have changed as well. I hate it, and now my intention is to turn from it. We saw that Wayne Grudem defined repentance as this way. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of sin, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Let me just take a minute or two here and and tell you a little bit about my my personal story in regards to repentance and how the doctrine of repentance became a very dear doctrine to me. When I was in college, I began to attend a church, and this was the first time I had ever attended a church apart from mom and dad. So I began to attend this church and uh, was just 
very much in love with the people there and had a great time talking with the pastor. And when I first began to attend the church, the pastor was going through the book of Romans. And, and, and who doesn't love going through the book of Romans, okay? Uh, it was just a great, great time of learning about God and the deep truths of the Christian faith. But I don't know if you've ever had this experience when going to a church, but as the, as the months went on, as the, the months went on, I began to have a, a sense of unease in my spirit about some of the things that the pastor was saying. I remember I'm a college student. I didn't have a really firm understanding of, of some of the, the deeper truths of the Christian faith, and so I couldn't quite put my finger on what was bothering me about the messages that were being preached. As the time went on, we left Romans, and we started going to the Gospels, and I became more uncomfortable. And let me just kind of truncate the story uh, into kind of what I began to realize. He t- the pastor taught that a person is saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, which, of course, I absolutely agreed with then and I agree with now. But I realized every now and then he'd say something that made me realize that he believed that a person could place their faith in Jesus Christ, could be, become a Christian, and produce no fruit whatsoever. That is, a person could become a Christian one moment, renounce God the next, and live a life in complete, total rebellion to him, and still be confident that they were a Christian based on some prayer that they had prayed. And I went to him, and I said, I don't quite understand what you're saying. I I think that we disagree on this. I'm just a college kid, uh, but I don't understand exactly what, what you're teaching here. And as we talked through it, we realized, or what he said is, look, just because you and I disagree about what happens after a person becomes a Christian, doesn't mean we disagree on how a person becomes a Christian. And so we're still united on the gospel. I said, well, I guess that that makes sense to me. And so I continued attending the church. But then I realized something else. What you believe about what takes place after a person becomes a Christian affects how you present the gospel. And so what happened is he said this. He said uh, in his teaching, he said that a person did not need to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord in order to be saved. Furthermore, a person didn't need to repent of their sins as they place their faith in Jesus Christ. He said, if you do that, you're adding works to salvation. I said, boy, that doesn't really make sense to me. I said, what does a person need to do to be saved? He said, well, they need to believe in Jesus. I said, yeah, but but who is Jesus? (laughs) If Jesus Christ isn't Lord, who are they placing their faith in? the name Jesus? And if a person doesn't understand that they're a sinner and they need to turn from their sins, why are they placing their faith in Jesus Christ again? And the more that I thought about it, and the more that I studied scripture, the more I realized that the doctrine of repentance, this teaching of repentance, is a very precious truth in the Christian faith. And a person absolutely is not found acceptable before God on the basis of their works, on the basis of the fact that they repent, but a person who's turning to Jesus Christ in faith is by definition turning from something, recognizing that the path that they're on is a pathway to hell, that they stand in line of God's judgment, they cannot save themselves, they must forsake that path that they're on and turn and trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's a very difficult thing to do, but eventually I was convinced of my need to, to leave that church, and I believe that I believe that, that pastor does believe the full gospel, even if he doesn't proclaim it to others in a very sad situation. 
Last week, again, we, we talked about repentance. We saw that repentance was turning from sin to faith in Christ. And the central idea that we kind of began looking at is that salvation from sin is, is always accompanied by genuine repentance. And both the believer and the unbeliever are called by God to turn from their sin and to faith in Christ. We saw, as John the Baptist begins this ministry, we looked at, began to look at six characteristics of the call to true repentance. The first thing that we looked at last week in verses 1 and 2 is that the call to repentance is proclaimed by God to lost people. Remember, we looked at verses 1 and 2 of, John, of Luke chapter 3. And we saw that John was called to proclaim the gospel to a very lost culture. It was a very dark spiritual place in the nation of Israel at that time. And John the Baptist is called to proclaim the message of repentance. He's not called to go and preach his own message. John doesn't go out in the wilderness and begin teaching his own uh, steps to a happy life. He doesn't begin doing the self-help uh, book tour. John the Baptist takes whose message? He takes God's message, and he delivers that message to the people. John the Baptist understands that he has been called by God to deliver this call to repentance to people. We talked about the application for us is this. You and I don't proclaim our own message to a lost world. We take God's message and proclaim it to those who need to turn from their sins, beginning with ourselves. The second thing we saw about this call to repentance, we saw that the call to repentance is accompanied by the promise of the forgiveness of sins. As a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, that true faith is going to be accompanied by repentance. We saw in Acts 20, 21 that Paul testified both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in Jesus Christ, that faith and repentance always are accompanied with one another. And then finally, the third thing that we looked at last week is that the call to repentance is given boldly. The call to repentance is given, bold, is given boldly so that men and women will know why they must repent. And that's where we left last week. We looked at verses 7 through 9. John the Baptist is issuing this very bold call to people to repent. Remember, he calls them these brood, he says, you're a bunch of brood of vipers, you're children of snakes. And as he issues this bold call to repentance, he questions their motivation. He questions what their confidence is concerning their salvation. And he questions whether or not they stand in line of God's judgment. In fact, he warns them that they do. That brings us to the fourth characteristic of the call to repentance this morning. The call to repentance, we see, bears fruit in the hearts of those who respond to it by faith. The call to repentance bears fruit in the hearts of those who respond to it by faith. Look at verse 10. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Now, here's what had taken place. John the Baptist had just issued this very strong warning to them. Look, you're a bunch of children of snakes. You're a brood of vipers. You're fleeing from the wrath. Who warned you from the, to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, you're trusting the wrong thing, and you're in line of God's judgment. And the people respond with a sense of fear. They recognize that what John is saying is true, and they say, look, John, what you're saying is right. What do we do if what you're saying is true? Now, here's my tendency. If a person comes to me and says, look, Daniel, I recognize that what you've said about sin applies to me. I feel pretty bad about it. What do I do now? My tendency is to pat him on the back. Hey, good job. You've repented. 
what John the Baptist does is something different, and here's what it suggests to me. A person who's acknowledged that they've sinned has taken a very important first step. But just because a person has acknowledged that they've sinned doesn't mean that they have truly repented. A person who's acknowledged that they've sinned, in fact, let me suggest this to you, is a person who's at a very dangerous point in their spiritual lives. Because a person who's at the, that point in their life where they feel really bad about their sin can go one of two ways. As a person feels really bad, really terrible about the terrible, terrible things they've done, they can either turn away from that sin bear fruit, as John says earlier in Luke chapter 3, bear fruit in keeping with repentance that, that leads them to life, or, catch this, a person who feels really bad about their sin can continue down a pathway that leads to death. There are examples over and over again in Scripture of people who felt really, really, really bad about their sin. Cain in Genesis chapter 4, remember his sacrifice isn't found acceptable before God, and it said, the text says that his face falls. You look at Cain, he's got a really sad face. He's been told that he sinned. That guy feels really bad. Poor Cain. No, not poor Cain. Unrepentant Cain. Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I have sinned. He tells Moses, I'm a sinner. I've sinned. But what do his actions bear out? That his sorrow was not a godly sorrow that leads to true repentance, but it was a sorrow that leads to further sin. One of the great examples in Scripture of sorrow that's not true biblical sorrow that leads to repentance is 1 Samuel 15. Go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 15 with me if you would. It's in the context in which Saul is just offered a sacrifice to God that he was not supposed to offer. Samuel was supposed to offer this sacrifice, and Samuel sees what Saul has done. And uh, Saul is told by Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, Samuel says, look, you've rejected the word of the Lord, and he also has rejected you from being king. Now, look at what happens with the interaction between Saul and Samuel here. And I'm spending a lot of time on this first point because I think it's John the Baptist's main point here in Luke chapter 3. The idea of fruit being born out of our repentance. Saul says to Samuel, verse 24, I've sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. You know, a person comes up to me and says, look, Daniel, I have sinned. I transgressed the commandments of the Lord. Now I want to worship God. What am I doing? All right, boy, good job. That's not necessarily, though, true repentance. And you and I, as we think about repentance in our own life, and as we counsel other people who feel sorry about their sin, we need to be very careful to make sure that that sorrow is true, biblical, godly sorrow. Look at what happens next. Samuel Verse 26 said to Saul, no, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. Samuel's able to see right through Saul's false sorrow. 
The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Verse 27, Samuel turned to go. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Man, talk about a pathetic display. Saul's groveling. I've sinned. He grabs Samuel's robe and he tears it. He is just this pathetic figure. Don't you feel bad for him? Not Samuel. Look, Samuel says, verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Verse 30, Saul says, I've sinned. Then listen, here you see his heart. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. What do we see there? Saul is really, really, really sorry. But his sorrow is born out of a desire to not lose his prestige. His repentance is not genuine. His sorrow is not of God. And therefore, that sorrow that he feels bears a fruit that continues in sin instead of bearing fruit that results in true repentance. John the Baptist, here as people come to John, John warns them. He understands that there's this narrow opportunity here, and he talks about the fruit that will result from genuine repentance. Look what he says here. It says, the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And John says, look, you guys, you have a God-shaped hole in your life that you're trying to fill with clothing and food. And, and, and instead of trying to find satisfaction in those things, try to be happy in Jesus. Is that what he says? <laughs> no, he says, look, you guys are a bunch of greedy guys. You're selfish. You have a problem with your greed. And if your repentance is genuine, what does he say? Those of you with two tunics with two changes of clothing are going to give some clothing to a person that doesn't have any. And if you have food in excess, you're going to look at the needs of another person and you're going to want to meet those needs. If your repentance is genuine, if your faith is truly turning toward God and you're sorrowful for, for your sins, that sorrow is going to result in action. It's interesting. Notice all the examples he's going to give here relate to material possessions. The way that we handle the resources that God has entrusted to us tells us much about our spiritual condition. The soldiers or the tax collectors come to Jesus or come to John the Baptist. And the tax collectors come to be baptized and say, okay, teacher, what about us? And, and John the Baptist says, look, you guys have a stressful life. You tax collectors are so stressed out. God wants to just soak up that stress from you so that you can enjoy life to the fullest as a tax collector. That's not what John the Baptist says. Hey, you guys are a bunch of cheats. <laughs> and if you really want to demonstrate repentance, the way it's going to manifest itself is, I know your job's complicated, and there are a lot of different taxes that you assess. Stop cheating. Don't take more than you're authorized to take. That's going to be the mark of genuine, true repentance in you. The soldiers come to John the Baptist. Okay, John, what do we do, teacher? What do we do? And John the Baptist says, look, you guys are emotionally empty. You are just emotionally empty, and you're trying to find emotional satisfaction and all these things. Find emotional happiness in Jesus. No, that's not what he says. He says, look, the word he uses here is, literally means to shake. You guys are shaking down people. You're abusing your authority. If your heart has truly changed, if you're turning to faith in God, you need to turn from this method that you have of obtaining material possessions. And furthermore, you need to be content with your wages. 
That's what he tells them there in verse 14. The possessions and the way that we use possessions are a great window into the soul. It indicates what they truly value. And true repentance, John the Baptist is saying here, is marked by what results. It's not marked by displays of sorrow. In fact, uh, turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a great passage that I, I go to when assessing my own repentance or counseling others as they talk about their sorrow over sin. 2 Corinthians 7, verse, verses 10 and 11 have this exact same idea that John is talking about here. Paul is talking to the people in Corinth, and he's talking about how he made them sad, and he feels says that they had sinned against him. He made them very sad. He said, you know, I felt bad about having to make you sad, but, but now I'm very happy that it happened because of, because of the fruit of your sorrow. Verse 10 says this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, there's a kind of equation there. Look, it starts off with sorrow. A godly sorrow produces repentance. Repentance leads to life. Worldly sorrow doesn't cause repentance. It leads to further sin and death. The problem is both life and death, repentance, not repentance, begin begin with this sorrow. And it's very hard to distinguish at the beginning what type of sorrow a person has, whether it's godly sorrow or worldly sorrow, godly grief or a worldly grief. The way that we can discern it in our own lives and the lives of others is what type of fruit it's producing. If this sorrow within us is continuing to produce further sin, be it Hope, a feeling of hopelessness, or I'll never change, or I feel so bad about the sin, that's the way I am. If that's what that grief is producing, that's not godly grief. But if that grief is producing what happens in verse 11, then it's a godly grief. Verse 11 says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. True godly sorrow produces this repentance that causes us to produce godly fruit. This past week, uh, you know, uh, many of you have heard the world's most uh, famous golfer, uh, Tiger Woods, on Friday issued this statement of apology. And many people were arguing, was he genuine? Was he, was he not genuine? You know, I didn't see tears. I kind of wanted to see some tears. I kind of wanted to see him grovel a little bit. I didn't like how he read the statement. I like how he read the statement and had it all in there. People were all over the map and trying to judge this, this man's heart. Now, I believe that whatever sorrow that he felt, whether genuine or, or not genuine, it, it wasn't a godly sorrow because his statement said that he's going to continue to rely on his, his Buddhist faith in order to, to change. That type of sorrow isn't a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow causes one to turn to Christ in order to receive forgiveness. But whatever the case, even if he had said the right words and said he was turning to faith in Jesus, how would he know if, how would he know and how would we know if his sorrow was genuine? If his repentance was genuine, he would know, others would know, based upon the fruit that is produced based upon the fruit that is produced. My encouragement to you as we think about this fourth characteristic is don't fall short of true, godly, biblical repentance. The people come to John, there's been this emotional response as they've heard about the danger that they're in, 
and John doesn't let them off the hook easily. He doesn't say, that's okay, don't worry about it, you feel bad. He says, look, check your hearts very carefully. If this is true, biblical sorrow, genuine biblical repentance, it's going to manifest itself in your works and your deeds and the fruit that is produced. Let's look at the fifth characteristic here. The fifth characteristic of the call to repentance is that it points people to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, uh, the people, John has just said these hard words, and the people recognize, man, there's something different about this guy's teaching. They recognize that there's something different about his, his teaching and preaching, and they, and they begin to, to be filled with expectation. And their hearts, they wonder, is this the guy? Is this guy the Christ? He is teaching a, a message that's far different than anything else the religious leaders are teaching. There's something unique about him. Maybe he's the Christ. And John the Baptist responds in the exact right way that a preacher of the true gospel should react. Not allowing them to continue to, to focus on him, he turns them to Christ. He says, look, I'm the water boy. I'm the guy that baptizes with water. And uh, it's an important ministry, yes, but really what I'm doing is reflecting what should be taking, I'm symbolically representing what should be taking place in your heart. But there's coming a guy. (laughs) There's coming a guy whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. I can't even touch his feet. And this guy, this guy is going to baptize you, not with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to baptize some of you with fire. There's been a lot of speculation in the history of the church as to what John the Baptist is saying here. Here's what I believe that he's saying. The Messiah is coming And as you repent, you should be placing your faith in him, recognizing his lordship and authority. And to those of you that recognize his lordship and authority, you're going to receive the the, the spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to to reside upon you. You're going to be baptized with him. Some of you, however, are not going to respond to his lordship. You're not going to repent in faith in, in him. And you're going to experience fire. And I believe there that he's talking about judgment. The reason I believe that is based upon how fire is used in in context here. Verse 9, the tree that doesn't bear fruit is thrown into fire. Verse 17 talks about this judgment as well. The the chaff is is burned with unquenchable fire. That takes place several other places in Luke. And so what I think he's talking here about is the distinguishing ministry of the Christ, the Messiah. In other words, this, the call to repentance is not designed to turn people from sin to just simply living a moral life. You don't recognize your sin and say, you know what, I'm going to try my bestest. I'm turning from sin. I'm going to, New Year's resolution time, and I'm going to start following this six-point code of conduct. No, John begins this proclamation of repentance not to get people to live moral lives, but to get them to place their faith in the coming Messiah, pointing them to his lordship. Last night, we had kind of a, a neat moment in our 
our family's life. Um, uh, Whitney is is uh, is out of town. Uh, she she traveled down to Texas to, to see her her sister who just had a, a baby. So uh, if I look a little disheveled this morning, it's because she wasn't able to help dress me. Um, and don't look at our children. Just so anyway. Uh, last night the the. The, the five remaining Bennett's are sitting there, uh, we're, we're praying, and it becomes uh, my youngest son Noah's turn to pray. And Noah looks at me and says, uh, Daddy, um, Daddy, I want to talk to you. I said, look, dude, just pray, okay? <laughs> we don't need to talk right now. We're not going to watch TV, okay? And don't tell Mommy about how much TV you've watched anyway. He says, Daddy, I want to I believe in Jesus. Not now. There's not enough time, son. No, no. So really, you know, he's four years old. I said, well, what does it mean to believe? Come over here. So he comes over and sits in my lap. I said, what what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Why do you need to believe in Jesus? He says, well, I want to go to heaven. I want to be with Jesus. I said, well, well, why do you need to believe in Jesus to go to heaven? Why can't you just go to heaven as you are? He goes, well, because I'm a sinner. Okay. Good answer. Good answer. We talked about how simply uh, praying a prayer doesn't make you a Christian. We talked about how a person needs to recognize that they're a sinner and that Jesus, we talked about Jesus, uh, he acknowledged that Jesus Christ died for my sins so that I could go to heaven. I believe in Jesus to save me from my sins. Okay? Now, here's the question. And so he acknowledged that, that that was all the things he was trusting in. He says, I want to tell God that that's what I'm doing, that I believe in him. And so he, he prayed and he told God that. Now, did he become a believer last night? And I'll tell you this. I'm certainly not comfortable saying that he didn't. <laughs> I don't like wearing millstones around my neck and jumping into lakes, okay? So uh, I, believe that it's, it's, I believe it's absolutely possible that a four-year-old can understand the essential truths of the gospel message and, and, and become a believer. I believe that's, that's absolutely possible. And uh, according to Matthew, you and I need to become like children. Children don't need to become like adults, okay? By the same token, I'm not going to offer him assurance of faith as he gets older if, he, if the fruit of his life is a person who, who isn't acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to tell him, well, hey, no, no, you prayed a prayer with me. You're okay. My, my point is this. I'm saying that a person to fully understand the gospel needs to repent of their sins and understand the lordship of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and say, look, I was very young when I became a Christian. I didn't know a whole lot. And I don't know if I consciously said I'm repenting of sins and I'm accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So I don't know if I, that's exactly what I did. Does that mean I'm not truly a Christian? Let me give you an illustration that I believe kind of describes the way that many people place their faith in Christ. I don't believe that a person has to have a full theological understanding of what repentance means exactly and the total totality of what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me give you an illustration. I'm still working on this. This may be a little rough. But imagine a person is thirsty. Say, I'm thirsty, and I'm going to, to drink this, this water to satisfy my thirst. And I'm talking to the person later, and I'm saying, so uh, you drank that water, and you drank that water, and, and how was it? They said, oh, it was so satisfying. I said, well, is, was it wet? Oh, yeah, it, was, that's, it wouldn't have satisfied me if it wasn't wet. And I said, were you thinking about the properties of water as you drank it? Well, no, but, I mean, I didn't consciously think about how wet it was as I was drinking it, but I understood that this, the wetness was going to be what satisfied my thirst. As we continue to talk about the properties of water, that person would acknowledge that the properties of water that, that I'm talking about are true, and that's what satisfied them. 
Similarly, I think a person who turns from sin and places their faith in Jesus understands that they're sinners and understands his authority to forgive their sins, even if they don't fully understand all the ramifications of of what it means to place their faith in Jesus. By contrast, let's say a person tells me, I was thirsty, I drank, I, I had some water, and the water satisfied me not at all. I said, well, tell me about your experience with the water. Was it cool? Was it wet? No, I, I went outside, I, I dug up some water, put it in my hand, and ate it. It was dry, it was crumbly, it was dusty. You know, I don't think you drank water. I think you were eating dirt. Similarly, if a person says, look, I, I tried Jesus. I tried Jesus. I, I was lonely. I, I, trusted, I, 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 prayed a, I prayed a prayer, and it didn't work for me. Well, did, did you turn from your sins? No, I, I, just, I just prayed a prayer. Did you understand that Christ has authority over your life? No, I didn't really, I didn't really buy that. I'm kind of my own man. I don't know what you did, but you didn't place your faith in Jesus. That's what I believe is kind of the essence of, of what's happening here. Even if a person doesn't fully understand all the ramifications of repentance, exactly what it means to place their faith in Jesus as Lord, a, a true believer is turning from their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, recognizing his authority. That's the call to repentance here. The call to repentance points people to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what John the Baptist does as he proclaims the gospel message. And what does that mean for us? It means that we must proclaim repentance to people so that they understand so that they understand their need for a Savior and they can come to Jesus who is the living water. They can understand why they're thirsty and how Christ can meet that thirst. A person who passes from death to life is a person who understands that they're dead in their trespasses and sin, that they need Jesus, and they place their trust in him alone. Sixth characteristic here of true repentance, or of the call to repentance. The call to repentance, we have to understand, will be rejected by many. Verse 18, verse 18, he says, it says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And it's interesting to me that as he talks about preaching good, as he calls John the Baptist's message, preaching good news, all he's been telling them is bad news almost, Right? <laughs> It's been some pretty bad news, and yet it's good news because that's where we find forgiveness is in recognizing our sin and turning to Christ. Verse 19, though, says this. It says, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the other things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. It's very interesting here. John is preaching this message to the politically powerful and he begins to call Herod out on his sin. Now, Herod was the son of, the Herod that he's referring to here is the son of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great had several wives, I believe like ten wives and, and many children, many sons. And at one point in his life, Herod, this Herod, Herod Antipas, who we see throughout the gospel messages, the gospels, he travels to see his half-brother Philip. Not the Philip mentioned earlier in Luke chapter 3, a different half-brother Philip. And Philip has this wife. Herodias, and Herod divorces his current wife and marries his brother's wife. There are several things wrong with this, right? 
First of all, it's wrong to divorce his current wife. Secondly, it was against the the law for him to to take his brother's wife. And finally, to make things even a little more soap opera-ish here, uh, this woman was the daughter of yet another brother. So not only is she his brother's wife, she's also his, his niece. Okay? Yeah, it's a little sick here. John the Baptist proclaims, look, Herod is wrong to do this. Herod doesn't like that message. And so Herod takes John the Baptist, in addition to all the other sins that Herod had committed, he adds this to them. He locks up John in prison. Now, from the other gospel accounts, what do we know about this time in prison for John the Baptist? We know that something very interesting happened. Herod would often listen to John the Baptist preach. John the Baptist would come and would talk to him, and based upon John's character, what do we think John would have told Herod? Uh, Based on Luke chapter 3, probably not some very good things. (laughs) Probably some things that were very tough for Herod to hear. And yet, in other gospel accounts, we see that Herod was afraid of killing him, one, because of the people, two, because he recognized that his words were from God. Herod never turned from his sin. John the Baptist's ministry ended because Herod put him to death. The gospel is not going to be accepted by all. God's call to repentance is going to be rejected by many. Herod has ample opportunity to turn from his sin and never does. I want you to prepare in your hearts now. We're about to partake of communion together. And I want you to think about God's call on your life. Perhaps you're an unbeliever. Perhaps you've never placed your faith in Jesus. Perhaps you've walked in your sin for as long as you can remember, and you've been trusting in your own works that somehow maybe your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad deeds, and you've never turned from that sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Maybe you're a believer. Maybe at some point in your life you have placed your faith in Jesus, and, and right now you are living in, in some sin. There's some sin that's, that's entangled you, and you feel unable to escape from that sin. You've been unwilling to turn from it. God's call on you this morning is to turn from that sin, to repent of it, and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I want to close by reading a quote from A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer is talking about the rather poor presentations of the gospel that were present in his day, and he wrote this, I believe, in the probably late 1950s, early 1960s. This is what he said about the, he calls it the new cross, the new gospel message that really isn't the gospel message at all. And listen to how it relates to repentance. Meditate on this as we prepare to partake of communion together. He says, there's a new cross, and the new cross does not slay the sinner. It just redirects him. It gears the sinner into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, uh, come and do your boasting of the Lord. To the thrill-saker, it's, 
the, to the thrill seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of the abundant Christian life. The idea behind this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. The cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a person. God salvages the individual by liquidating him and then raising him to a newness of life. The corn of wheat must fall into the ground and die. God then bestows life, but not an improved old life. Whoever would pass, uh, whoever would possess it must pass under the rod. He must repudiate himself and concur in God's just sentence against himself or against him. How can this theology be translated in life? Simply the non-Christian must repent and believe. He must forsake his sins and then go on to forsake himself. Let him cover nothing, defend nothing, excuse nothing. Let him not seek to make terms with God, but let him bow his head before the stroke of God's stern displeasure and acknowledge himself worthy to die. That's the message of the cross. That's the message that an unbeliever needs to hear and accept is true. It's the message that we as believers need to continually proclaim to ourselves. God, slay me. Not I, but, but you who live within me. I don't just want you to direct my old life. I want to turn from my old life toward faith in you. 